As you're turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, where we'll pick up at the 14th verse this Lord's Day morning, I will uh, remind you that in the first three chapters, or at least in a good deal of the first three chapters of Romans, Paul is basically laying out his indictment. Back when we started this series on Romans, I pointed out to you that the first three chapters would largely be focused on our need for justification, the reason why mankind so desperately stands in need of nothing else like it needs justification to be made right with God. This means, therefore, that the uh, sermons that rise generally from these first chapters will be difficult ones to hear. Let me assure you that they are just as difficult to preach. No pastor finds joy, no true pastor finds joy in preaching one convicting sermon after another if for no other reason than that he himself doesn't find particularly a great deal of joy in listening to them and receiving them himself. But of course, not all is doldrums and drudgery because the true pastor also sees where it's all going. To the salvation of himself, to the salvation of his hearers, as Paul once taught a young preacher in Ephesus. So to Romans chapter 2, we go, but first to prayer. Our Father in heaven, grant us grace, we pray, to receive your truth with humility, with readiness, with uh, joy in knowing that you, Lord, have spoken this as well. Teach us as we have already prayed in song. Teach us, O Lord, thy holy way and from it we will not depart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts arise to accuse and even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law and having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, 
the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul, the prosecutor, has called many witnesses to the stand in the course of pressing his case against all mankind. All creation, the stars, the moon, the trees, the birds have been called to bear witness to the reality of God. His invisible attributes having been clearly seen in the things that have been made. Man himself has been called to testify against himself by his debased behavior, even to the point of exchanging natural relations for unnatural sexual relations. Sin in all of its ugliness has manifested itself and risen to accuse us. But now Paul calls his star witness to the stand to demonstrate that we are lawbreakers. And in a great stroke of irony, that witness is the law itself. And from this witness, there is no escape. The law of God will testify against every one of us, Jew and Gentile alike. No, not in the same way, mind you, because not everyone has the law of God in the same way. Not everyone has the law the way you and I have it written out in black and white letters before us in the Bible. There are still people in the world who have not held a copy of God's Word in their hands, who have not seen it, whose, whose eyes have never fallen on the words of life. But we all have the law. We all have the law. Or at least the work of the law in some sense and in some way whether on tablets of stone or on the tablets of our heart. Paul lays out the argument in two parts, turning his eyes first to one group and then to another, and our eyes are turned with his this morning, beginning with what he calls the Gentiles and then to the Jews. Consider then, first, that the law of God condemns the Gentiles. Now, you may be thinking here in racial terms when you hear that word Gentile, and that would be natural. In Paul's day, especially, that would hold true. There were two groups in the world from the Bible's perspective up to the time of Christ. There were the Hebrews, or Jews, on the one hand, and on the other, everyone else. And the everyone else consisted of anyone who was not Jewish and therefore fell under the umbrella of Gentile. And you remember the scripture itself making the very point that God revealed his law to the nation of Israel. He declares his word to Jacob, the psalmist writes, his statutes and his rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. And that was true as far as it went. So a Gentile might be tempted to use this fact as an excuse for his sin. I just didn't know any better, he might 
say in response to Paul's indictment? I didn't have God's law. He revealed it to the Hebrews, didn't reveal it to us. Well, Paul has anticipated that very feeble attempt at an excuse and pulls the rug out from under it before it even opens its mouth. Even the Gentiles, the people who never heard the law of God, read to them from the Bible, who couldn't tell you whether God summarized His law in Ten Commandments or in Twenty, I say, even they have God's law. Or at least what Paul calls the work of the law on their hearts. We all do. Every human being does. In the creation of the world, God wrote His law on the heart of man. Adam understood God's requirements clearly, and when he disregarded them, he fell, and the image of God in which he was created was marred. But it was not totally lost. And there remained, and there remains to this day, a vestigial trace of God's law, the work of God's law in the heart of every human being. What he does with that remaining work of God's law is the question, but of the fact that he has it, there is no doubt. C.S. Lewis approached this fact from a slightly different perspective. He called this work of the law in every human heart the, quote, law of nature. He writes in his classic apologetic work, Mere Christianity, that while witnessing a quarrel, we can learn something very important by listening to what kind of things are said. They say things, Lewis writes, they say things like this. How would you like it if anyone did the same thing to you or that's my seat I was here first or leave him alone he isn't doing you any harm why should you shove in first give me a bit of your orange I gave you some of mine come on you promised people say things like that every day Educated people as well as uneducated educated children as well as adults. Now what interests me, Lewis continues, about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man seldom replies to hell with your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out that what he has been doing does not really go against the standard. Or that if it does, there is some special excuse. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play, or decent behavior, or morality, or whatever you like to call it, about which they really agreed. And they have. If they had not, they might, of course, fight like animals. 
but they could not quarrel in the human sense of the word. Quarreling means trying to show that the other man is wrong. And there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement on what right and wrong were. Are. Just as there would be no sense in saying that a footballer has committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules of football. Now, isn't that precisely what Paul is saying here in this text, even with more theologically precise terms? The law of God is at work in the life of the Gentiles. In other words, the lives of people who have never seen God's written law, it is written on their heart. The work of the law goes beyond saying that some behaviors are just seem to work out better than others. As Paul points out, this work of the law actually goes so far as to accuse and excuse them in their own hearts. Which brings me to the next point about the Gentiles. The one who has not God's law revealed to him in words, but does have the work of the law in their hearts, he also has, the Gentile has, he also has a conscience. Everyone has one. It's that small voice inside of you that says, this is right or this is wrong. Now, consciences come in all different shapes and sizes and sensitivities. Some are much stronger than others. Some have been drowned or choked out to unconsciousness by repeated sins or even by things like drugs or booze. The conscience can be seared until it feels and therefore says virtually nothing. But before that time, it is a great and powerful ally at work with the law in the heart. Put them together, the work of the law on every human heart and the conscience, which accuses and excuses, and you have what John Murray called our indestructible moral nature our indestructible moral nature. These things are woven right into our being, right into our fibers, are these strands of morality and truth and God's law, the work of it. We have a remarkable sense, even apart from the Bible, apart from reading it, we have a remarkable sense for morality, for right and wrong. Look at the different societies over, over the years. Study the ancient Egyptians, or the Hindus, or the Chinese, or the Greeks, or the Romans, and you find that standards of morality carry some remarkable consistency across cultures, even cultures that knew nothing of the Bible. Listen to the stories of missionaries, one after another, who enter into cultures where the gospel has gone, and over and again, their accounts are remarkably similar. And I say where the gospel has gone, where the gospel has not gone. And their accounts are remarkably similar. There are standards of right and wrong, even in the most primitive of cultures. 
that have never heard God's word. Why? How did it get there? Because it always was there. Working in the hearts of men. And conscience was right there to approve of them or to condemn them for the contrary. The work of the law and the conscience are like two witnesses on the stand, on the witness stand together. When the prosecution asks one a question, the other whispers into the first's ears and informs the testimony of the first. And you might even go so far as to say that there are three witnesses together in the witness stand. The third is the witness of the memory, of the thoughts. Verse 15, at the end, their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The memory of things thought, of things done, of things said, combined with the conscience and the star witness, the law, the work of the law on the heart, all together bear witness against us. And together their witness removes any reasonable doubt, any shadow of a doubt, really. When they testify against us, guilty, guilty is the Gentile, the one who has not received the written law, guilty even apart from the law. He was not ignorant. Nobody is. For the work of the law is on the very heart of every human being. Donald Barnhouse, in his treatment of Romans, paints a vivid picture of these three witnesses after the image of the three marchers. Remember marching in that painting, The Spirit of 76, in which a drummer and a standard bearer and a fifer march briskly down the road together. He compares our conduct as measured by the work of the law in our heart and our conscience and our memory to the three marchers. Thus, your conduct beats the drum that declares by your resounding good works that you know there is a divine law. Your conscience waves the flag that reminds you that you often have trampled your principles in the dust as you rushed your way past on your way to complete the desires of your own will. And the fife of your memory shrieks its refrain to remind you that you have sinned. The excuses and accusations of your own thought run like shrill arpeggios in the counterpoint of your guilt. And the trio, conscience, conduct, and mind, are all in step in perfect unison of condemnation because you have followed the road of your own will, refusing the road that forks 
at the cross of Jesus Christ that will lead you, if you will follow it, even into eternal life. So much for the Gentile, or to put it in modern terms, so much for people who have never read or seen the Bible. They are guilty because they sin against the work of God's law in their hearts, which together with the conscience and with the memory will rise up on that terrible day to bear witness against them. Now at this point, the Jew who is hearing all of this, <coughs> well, he's feeling, he's feeling pretty good about himself. He's straightening his tie. I agree. Paul, Galvo, you preach it. Those terrible Gentiles, they deserve to die. But the Jew is in for a shock. In fact, one commentator describes what comes next as shattering to the Jew. Because not only does the law condemn the Gentile, the one who has not the written law, but even more, second, the law of God condemns the Jew as well. Now here again, you're tempted to think, I know you are, in racial terms. And it was true enough in Paul's day, he was speaking of Jews who were Jews by their race. But this is the point. The point is, they had been given the law of God. They had it before them in written form. It had been trusted to their forefathers. It was taught in their schools. It was read in the temple and in the synagogue. But the same may be said about you. About every one of you, dear flock, whatever your race, person Paul describes here as the Jew is you and it is I why because we have these very privileges about which Paul writes we have the word of God we have his law in fact we read his law together out loud right here in this sanctuary we do from time to time. And we hear it preached to us every week here in this place. We have the entire Bible, which is called altogether the law of God. When Paul turns to them and says, you call yourself a Jew, he might just as well have been turning to you and saying, you... You call yourself a Christian. Or maybe we might even put it this way. You call yourself a church member. Try it on for size. Verse 17. But if you call yourself a church member and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent, because you're instructed from your Bible, and if you are sure that you are yourself a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in your Bible the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say 
that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in your Bibles, but dishonor God, you break the law. You dishonor God by breaking the law. It is one of the great ironies in our day, at least in our place, in our nation, that Christians are fighting tooth and nail in some places to keep or to get copies of the Ten Commandments posted in places like county courthouses and government schools. Thumping Bibles, holding demonstrations, gathering at the courthouse, protesting at the abortion clinics. American Christians are shrilly, shrilly shouting at our culture about its need to obey God's law, or at least to frame it on the wall. Yet while fighting to get the Ten Commandments posted on the county courthouse lawn, so many American Christians freely disregard the law of God in our own lives. For one thing, we've effectively reduced the number of binding commandments to nine with our utter widespread disregard for the Fourth Commandment for keeping the Sabbath day holy. To be consistent with our practices, we really should have to argue at the courthouse for posting the nine commandments that really count. What is more, among those who publicly condemn sexual immorality, alas, sexual scandals have been proliferating. Cases of sexual abuse by her ministers, no less have rocked not only the Roman Catholic Church, but the Protestant as well. Most unbelieving people in America, I would wager, did not even know that the National Association of Evangelicals even existed until it was scandalized by the sexual immorality of its president last year. Since almost a decade ago, it has been commonplace to hear that divorce rates are roughly the same, perhaps even a bit higher, among those who call themselves born-again or evangelical Christians. Ah, but you say, they only call themselves evangelical Christians. And that's exactly the point. Like the Jews in Paul's day who wanted to claim the name but not subject themselves to the requirements that went along with it. So many Christians, many church members today want the name and the rights of condescension to look down on those bad people out there without regard to the condition of their own house and their own hearts 
and lives. Sure, we have the law. Sure, we have the Bible. Sure, we hear it preached in God's house week after week. Sure, it's found on the shelves of our home. Some of us have three and four and ten Bibles in our houses. Sure, we have bookcases filled with Bible study booklets. And more at the Christian bookstore down the road, right between the Jesus bumper stickers and the Testament breath fresheners. A dear church member, dear Christian, of what good are any of these things unless you obey God's law yourself? What good can they do you if you simply do in secret the very things you condemn others for doing in public? Indeed, may it not with tragic irony be said to a worldly and in so many ways idolatrous Christian church in America today that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's a matter of terrible fact, my dear hypocritical Christian friend who love to point out the sins of others while giving precious little consideration to your own. Unless you repent, your name, Christian, your Bible, your church membership will be the very things that rise up to bear most fiercely witness against you on the day of Christ Jesus. And don't you dare... Don't you dare comfort yourself with the thought that there's a little bit of hypocrisy in every Christian. As Rabbi Duncan, the Scott Presbyterian missionary and scholar, wisely observed, the fact that everyone is a sinner is the hypocrite's bed of ease. But it is the believer's bed of thorns. Your business, Christian, your business is to see that you never, ever find any pride in the fact that you bear the name of Christ. Only a terrible summons to keep a clear conscience for the day of judgment and to see like nothing else, to see that your life matches your name. It is not the possession nor even the profession of the law that matters, Christians, but the practice of it. And here's where you may begin to put the law into practice. By obeying the commands of Christ to repent of your sins and to turn to God in belief and humble trust 
upon him. The day of judgment is coming. It is soon at hand. On that day, the law will rise. For the one who had its work upon the heart, it will rise from there. From the one, for the one who had it in his hand, it will rise from there. And it will rise and accuse us to the man. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who by faith and trust in Him loved God's law, like the psalmist did, and found God's statutes His chief delight, like pure gold, like honey from the honeycomb, God's law will be to them light and life eternal. Amen.